guys, Brian with Cajun Cardboard coming at you from the great state of Louisiana. And today I am going way out on a limb. Hopefully this will start an intelligent, constructive, logical discussion about the state of the hobby and something that uh, you hear uh, kind of bounced around in the hobby as, you know, common sense. Everybody knows it. something we call supply and demand. Uh, so we're going to talk about supply and demand today from the perspective of a Cajun who is not an economist. Uh, I have a law degree. I am licensed to practice law in multiple states. I have a business finance degree, but I am by no stretch of the imagination an economist. I hated it in college. Uh, I am starting to like it quite a bit now and almost regret not minoring in uh, economics when I was in college because the economy fascinates me and so much of what I do in this hobby from an investor perspective um, you know hinges on the economy and uh, understanding the economy and understanding the economics of the big picture and understanding the economics that uh, that the hobby gives us and, and how uh, supply and demand works so we're gonna talk about that again don't flame me in the comments I'm not preaching to you I'm not speaking from a condescending I know everything perspective because I am learning in this hobby just like you guys are and none of us have the answers even though a lot of us uh, oftentimes think we do you never know when you're gonna get hit with a left hook to the nether region as I like to say in this hobby so without any delay let's get cranking I've got a little uh, slideshow here for you guys and uh, and let's talk about it so uh, first thing is let's define it right let's define supply so I looked this up on dictionary.com I'm sure there's other definitions out there but I chose the one most apt for our analysis today supply is a quantity of something on hand or available as for use a stock or store okay so here we go with the age-old comparison between a stock and I don't think they meant a stock as in a share of corporate stock but we'll use it for this uh, comparison and cards right we always compare stocks to cards there are a lot of similarities but there are a lot of vast differences ultimately it's the end use of the actual asset itself uh, a share of stocks uh, utility uh, you know and, and worth is uh, completely different to the end user than a card of a player that they love or that they looked up to as a kid or that they want to keep forever or hand down to their children so uh, despite the fact there's a lot of similarities between stocks and cards there's also a lot of differences but supply is one half of the equation right we know that you hear it all the time it's simple supply and demand or somebody will post something and say why is this card going down oh it's supply and demand like that's the answer that's not really an answer that is an apps that's actually just an analysis and so uh, one half of it is supply and so some of the questions we ask when it comes to the card hobby and the, the sports card hobby is how many exist right now okay and now imagine how hard it was in the 60s if you were pulling Wilt Chamberlain's out of 1961 Fleer packs imagine how miserably impossible it would be to, to, to ponder the question how many Will Chamberlain cards are out there? Uh, how many how many Will Chamberlain cards uh, in PSA 10 condition are out there? Of course, hypothetically, grading didn't exist. Uh, so today we have a wonderful you know products such as Card Ladder, the PSA Pop Report. There's a million other data pricing tools and 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 you know software and and apps and all that out there where you can actually quantify the current supply of how many cards of this particular player 
from this particular brand in this particular grade. I like to use card ladder, so that was the example that I threw out there. I haven't felt the need to use any other data pricing tools. Uh, how many will exist in the future at my expected time of liquidation? So it's real easy to figure out how many exist today. I type in cardladder.com. I go on there. I look up Luka Doncic base 2018 Prism PSA 10. You know, if I had done that in 2018, it might have said 1,200. 1,200. Wow, that seems like a lot of PSA 10 base. Uh, but what I really wanted to know was... If I'm going to sell these things in two years, and that's my expected window of uh, buy low, sell high, I wonder how many PSA 10 base Luca prisms there will be in 2022. Uh, so that's really the question, right? Uh, that 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 projection forward, that prognostication of, of supply is more important than identifying the current supply of that particular card in that particular grade today, because I don't think many of us, maybe, uh, but I don't think all of us certainly would have thought that there would be, you know, over, you know, 30,000 Luka Doncic base prism P, uh, PSA and BGS and SGC graded cards out there. Uh, but guess what? There are. Surprise! Um, and then the next question is how many are printed? And that sort of ties in with question number two. We kind of need to know how many are printed. For some reason, you know, we used to get pack odds in the 90s. That's why a lot of us love the 90s because we can calculate what the odds were of pulling a particular insert or more aptly from my perspective, what the odds are of pulling a particular Michael Jordan insert. So you hear pack odds thrown around by people in the 90s. For ultra modern collectors, that might be freaking a, just a totally different language and you may never have even heard that term um and again if you're a collector and a true collector turn the video off stop watching because this is all going to be about investing and numbers and economics and supply and demand and uh, price discovery uh but uh so uh, today's you know obviously ultra modern collector would know things like box hit or case hit or one autograph per box, and that's kind of their version of pack odds. Back in the 90s, it was like, well, there's a one in 5,480 chance that you're gonna pull a Michael Jordan, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blank insert. And then of course, uh, grading that at PSA 10 is a whole nother, whole nother world. What's the second half of the equation? It's demand, of course, so supply and demand. Demand is something that is demanded, an urgent or pressing requirement. Well, that's kind of it in a nutshell, we knew that. Um, Demand, however, is significantly more difficult to ascertain than supply, right? It's not just how much do you demand it. Obviously, we know that. We can look in the mirror and say, how much do I want this uh, Luka Doncic neon green pulsar? Uh, that's real easy to answer uh, that question. But the question is, from an investor perspective, is how much do other people want this card? Not just now, but similar to our analysis with supply, how much do other sports card investors or collectors, right? So from an investor perspective, you gotta think about uh, what these cards mean to other investors, but also almost more importantly, of how important will this card be to a collector? Because in the sports card hobby, that's the ultimate question is, at the end of this game, it's not just a hot potato, it's how much is someone going to want to own this card for the sake of owning this particular card and this particular grade? Uh, you can only play hot potato for so long. There has to be an end user who wants the thing, who wants the card for the sake of the card, not just for the sake of buy low, sell high. Uh, so uh, future demand is significantly more difficult to ascertain and predict than supply. And remember, we're trying to ascertain or predict the future demand of other collectors and investors, not just ourselves. Can an in uh, Demand can increase and decrease in a volatile manner in the hobby. We've seen it a lot, <laughs> especially lately. And unfortunately, it's been a lot of decreasing, but guess what? During this same 18 month 
uh, downturn, in, generally downturn in the market and the economy and the stock market and crypto. We've also seen wildly volatile increases in card prices for certain types of cars, certain select cards. And so the demand side is where we get the volatility, especially in the uh, sports card hobby. So supply almost never increases. Demand increases and decreases on a daily basis. And uh, you know, over a year, you may not even recognize how much the demand has increased or decreased for a particular player or product or card or thing like that. Uh, but I say supply almost never increases because think about it, the, the supply of PSA 10 Doncic's is not going down. Uh, PSA 9's not going down. Even the Wilt Chamberlain's and the Kareem's and the George Mikan's, those aren't going down uh, unless they are knowingly destroyed and then removed from the pop reports. Uh, so yes, can, can someone's house catch on fire? Sure. Can, uh, you know, somebody accidentally drop one and destroy it in a tip? A 10 becomes a 7. Sure, of course it can happen. It's just not likely. But the situations that I'm thinking of where supply can actually uh, decrease are, number one, sealed wax, where the, uh, you know, situations where the asset itself, a wax box, is consumed or destroyed through its normal, uh, ordinary expected use. Uh, sealed wax is expected to be opened. And so uh, as each sealed wax uh, 1986 Fleer box is opened, whether it's authentic or not, uh, bad, sorry about that, too soon, maybe, sore subject. Uh, but as 86 Fleer boxes are opened, the supply of 86 Fleer boxes consequentially must go down. So that's one example. The other, I have three types of situations, and I've got them the Johnny Moore uh, situation, the 52 top situation, and the PMG Green situations. And we won't go into too much detail, but the Johnny Moore situation is real simple. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the 1986 Fleer set PSA 10 is very highly sought after. I'm familiar with the set. A lot of you guys out there at least know of its existence. Well, there's a player named Johnny Moore. He's card number 76. Because of where he was located on the printing sheet and print dots and a bunch of other reasons, he's a common. He was a pretty good player, actually, for the Spurs. But he's a common. His card is extremely rare, right? There are less than 100 of them. It's around 75. I don't know. I haven't paid attention to the pop. But the Johnny Moore supply is actually going down on a regular basis because there is one collector out there who has hoarded 20 of these cards. And so if there are ordinarily 75 Johnny Moores, every time one comes to market, it disappears. And not just from the open market, it disappears into the hands of a known Johnny Moore hoarder who is not sharing his Johnny Moore hoard with uh, us as collectors and investors. And so he is actually single-handedly decreasing the actual available free market supply of Johnny Moore PSA 10. So that's example number one. It can be done with very low pop cards. Obviously, I can't go out there and buy 17,750 Luka Doncic base Prism PSA 10s, even though it seems like I probably could. Uh, but you can do it on very small sample sizes. For instance, gold Prism PSA 10s. You could hoard six of them, in which case... If you're not willing to bring those to bear in the market and make those available to other investors and collectors in the sports car hobby, then essentially you're single-handedly decreasing the supply. The other example is an extremely rare one. We kind of touched on it, destroying the actual asset. Uh, you know, we've all heard the story, and I'm not going to talk about it, where I think the 52 tops baseball cards, they couldn't sell them enough, or maybe it was a high series. I'm not a baseball card expert. One of you vintage guys step in here and correct me if I say something stupid. Uh, I probably shouldn't even speak on the subject, but it's my understanding, or at least there is a story, that 
52 tops. They made too many of them. They couldn't give them away. So they dumped the like cases upon cases upon cases in the Hudson River. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I would love to hear some comments from some of you wily old baseball vintage collector veterans out there. So tell me I'm wrong. Maybe it was the Nile River or something or the Amazon, but I thought it was the Hudson River and I thought it was 52 tops. Maybe I'm getting my stories mixed up, but that's another example where the actual supply of the known asset is decreased through destruction or theft or fire or something like that. And then another one is PMG Greens. Uh, everybody's heard the story story about, uh, you know, we know there's 10 PMG Green Jordans. That is the holiest of holy grails in the hobby. Um, you know, probably the most sought after Michael Jordan basketball court card on planet Earth is the 1997 Metal Universe PMG Green. Most of us can only dream about owning one. There are well, there were 10 allegedly printed and in existence in the world, but there is an old wives tale and I don't know if it's been verified or not. And this is in the basketball world. So uh, I should probably know if this is true or not, but I have heard that one of those 10 has been destroyed and therefore there are only nine, thus decreasing the world's supply of PMG greens by 10% in one fell swoop. So those are just three examples where there's a known small quantity of a particular card or asset and one or more are are known to be either unascertainable because they've been extracted from the open market uh, permanently or for uh, an indefinite time period or they've been destroyed or something like that so what is the law of supply and demand and here's where things get squirrely and this is why I don't like it when you know somebody posts something on Instagram or Facebook like why is this card at this price it seems like it should be more and some you know you know, this no Cajun would ever do this, but some non-Cajun pipes in with, well, it's supply and demand. You know, like that's the answer to why the card is priced where it is. Well, that's, that's dumb. Number one, it doesn't answer the question. And number two, it doesn't even make any sense because the, the law of supply and demand reads as follows. The law of supply and demand combines two fundamental economic principles, supply and demand, describing how changes in the price of a resource uh, commodity or product, we'll say sports cards, can affect its supply and demand. So the law, and listen very closely here, because this is where it gets weird and sort of uh, uh, illogical from my perspective. The law of demand holds that the demand level for a product or a card will decline as its price rises and the demand will rise as the price drops. Hmm, that's odd. So again, let me read it again. The law of demand says the demand for a card will decline as its price rises and it will rise as the price drops. Okay, that might work for gas or crops or something like that, but let's read about the law of supply. Conversely, the law of supply says, higher prices boost the supply of an economic good while lower ones tend to diminish it. That really doesn't seem to apply very much at all, neither one of those to the card market, and let me show you why. Uh, we know for a fact, and I've got two great examples on our screen here. We know for a fact that oftentimes drastically falling prices have the opposite effect of the demand for a card and vice versa. The card pictured on the left, that's exhibit A, the 2018 Prism Luka Doncic PSA 10. I've got it pulled up over here on Card Ladder. There it is. What has the price done over the last year? Well, gee, let's see. It's gone from $825, and again, don't get me started on where it was two years ago, to $368. That is a 51.39% decrease in the value of the card. Well, the law of demand says that as the price goes down, demand for the card is gonna go up. 
that's not the case. We've seen quite the opposite. Price is going down and demand is going down. In fact, it is a lack of demand that is driving the price down, right? So just take that as exhibit A. Exhibit B uh, that we've got over here is our 19, uh, 1984 star Jordan number 101. This is his XRC. Ah, I said it. Yes, I've got to squeeze that into every video. Uh, this is his 1984 star number 101. Here it is on card ladder. You can see it. Let me pull it up over here. There it is. Beautiful card. Great copy of a BGS 8, by the way. Uh, this card, as you can see, over the last year has risen greatly in demand. Part of the reason is PSA decided to grade it, right? But also part of the reason is the card's just not a very high population card. And we're going to talk about this more later. Uh, the lower population options are starting to kind of rise in value as opposed to the high population cards like the Doncic Prism we just looked at. But we know this card has risen in value. And that is the opposite of what the law of demand says, that as the price rises, uh, demand goes down. And quite the contrary. As the price has risen for this card, demand has gone up considerably. Uh, at least I would aver. Uh, let me know in the comments if you disagree. And again, I don't own a star card and I don't own a Doncic base prism anymore. I cut out of that sucker in 2020 and did quite fine. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us did the same thing. So uh, that is... Uh, Two examples of where the law of supply and demand does not apply in any way, shape, or form whatsoever to the hobby. In fact, <clears throat> I think it's a, a misnomer. What people are trying to say when they comment on Instagram posts about why a card is or isn't what it should be is they're talking about price discovery. And what is price discovery? It is the overall process, uh, whether explicit or inferred, of selling the spot price or the proper price of an asset and we'll leave it at that. The process of price discovery looks at a number of tangible and intangible factors, including supply and demand, right? But there's more. It also looks at investor risk attitudes. How much risk are investors willing to take at any given point in time in the hobby based on their environment and their, um, their existence as a citizen on planet Earth? Uh, so risk attitudes of investors and, in this case, collectors as well and the overall economic and geopolitical environment. Oh my God. So we are now uh, outside of the scope of the hobby. We're no longer in our nice little safe space, our little microcosm of collecting cardboard pictures of athletes. We are talking about the overall economic and geopolitical environment that we exist in. Yes, that's right. Uh, living in Asia affects, you know, demand just like living in America does, you know, depending on Asia's current economic and geopolitical environment. It may be different than the United States of America, which may be different than, uh, you know, our great collector friends in Australia, which may be different than our European collector friends who are just now figuring out how to collect basketball cards. Uh, sorry about that dig. Uh, simply put, uh, price discovery is where a buyer and seller agree on a price and a transaction occurs. So wherever they agree, these little data points that I've showed you on card ladder, see these little points on the screen? Those are price discoveries. That is where supply and demand meet and all of these other factors are taken into account to arrive at a, co a consummated transaction where a buyer and seller come to terms on what a particular asset is worth, right? How much is the card worth? So let's talk again, let's go back. So key takeaways from this. Number one, price discovery is the process of finding out the price of a given asset or commodity, right? We just talked about it, that's it. 
So it's not really supply and demand. It's supply, demand, and then A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P factors to determine what the price discovery equilibrium is. Price discovery is the central function of a marketplace. That's what we're in. This hobby is a marketplace, whether you like it or not. Even in the most, you know, just old rotchety, uh, is rotchety a word? It is in Louisiana. Old uh, crotchety, is crotchety a word? I don't even know if that's a word. What am I trying to say? Old, rigid, stubborn, vintage, true take it to the grave collectors would admit that we exist in a marketplace because to collect you have to purchase a card from a seller or you know a, a selling platform it's a marketplace and the function of the marketplace is to discover the price discovery equilibrium right that's it that's what this is that's why card ladder exists we want to know what the price discovery point is for a particular card in a particular grade on a particular day for a particular player uh, the price discovery equilibrium depends on a variety of tangible and intangible factors, as we discussed, from market structure to liquidity to information flow. Okay, I really want to talk about this last one, information flow. That is where arbitrage can be had in this hobby. And that is where I and many others have thrived in the hobby. Not to beat my chest, but I pride myself in spending more hours per day than the average hobbyist on the hobby, right? Not just creating content, not just researching these videos, not just going on eBay, not just listening to YouTube content or Spotify or Apple or Card Ladder uh, or or digging on you know whatnot or my slabs or all of that crap. I pride myself and I have a competitive advantage because my access to information flow is greater than most. And again, I'm not out here saying I'm the be all end all and I'm not giving advice. Uh, but one thing I do know is that not much different than every other aspect of life. The more time you put in, the better you're going to get at something and the more advantageous and the more competitive advantage you're going to have over the people around you trying to accomplish the same goals, right? Uh, basically, hard work and talent beats just talent is what I'm getting at. So uh, competitive advantages and information flow are crucial. Access to card ladder and market movers if that's your thing and alt and card hedge and um, or card hedger or whatever it's called. And then like uh, there's like card headquarters or whatever out there. There's all kinds of new ways. eBay, you know, 130 point. eBay sold access to information that provides you price discovery points over a historical you know database is important uh watching nba basketball by the way is more important than anything when it comes to prospecting and identifying the next one if you want to predict the future of the nba guess what you absolutely have to do watch the freaking nba you can't just watch sports center top 10 and then look at a box score and figure out who the next great one's going to be it's not that easy it doesn't work right a lot of people come into the hobby and you know ask the dude next to them hey who do i need to invest in it doesn't work that way you better hope the person you're asking pours hours and hours into watching actual nba footage it matters. I don't care what anybody out there says. You can read all the articles you want and you can listen to all the opinions. Nothing beats the eye test. I'm sorry, Chris Hoge is not going to like that. Even analytics don't beat the eye test because guess what? Analytics don't drive card prices yet. Maybe one day, but not yet. They don't. The eye test drives card prices. That's why Allen Iverson cards are worth more than Dirk Nowitzki because he was more visually appealing to watch. That's why Vince Carter cards, you know, sell like Tim Duncan cards half the time. Because guess what? He did crazy shit that people had never seen with their own eyeballs. It matters, right? Watching NBA games also gives you a competitive advantage.
advantage. When people are out there buying Mobamba and Jonathan Isaac, I watched Jonathan Isaac and Mobamba and said, these guys suck. I want nothing to do with these two players. <laughs> I'm never investing in these two guys. Am I going to get it right every time? No, but I'm certainly going to eliminate players based on my personal experience and my own eyeballs that I don't think have the it factor, right? Or or are priced commensurate. I don't think their price discovery equilibrium will be higher in the future. Why? Because I've watched enough basketball to conclude I don't see them having what I need to see to make an investment. Uh, playing the game is a huge advantage. Having actually played the game matters, right? You you know what you know what you can do, right? And you don't need to have played it on a high level. I played small college level, right? Uh, shout out to my uh, alma mater for winning the national the NAI national championship, Loyola in New Orleans. Uh, congratulations to those guys and Coach Stacy Hollowell, who has since uh, taken a bag of money and moved on to bigger and better things at the University of Ole Miss. But uh, anyway, shout out to Loyola, man. It was it was a fun couple of years there. But I played basketball at a very small level uh, at a, at a very small college in New Orleans, Louisiana. But having played hundreds of thousands of hours of pickup basketball and playing college basketball and playing high school basketball and playing high-level AAU basketball. That matters, guys. Uh, being able to identify what other players can and can't do or what it is you couldn't do or what what makes players succeed on the court. Little tiny indicia of information built up over the course of decades. And yes, I'm old, 48 years old. That's an advantage too. Uh, being 48 is an advantage over being 22 because you've learned by being stupid and you've learned by being smart and you've learned from your mistakes and you've learned from your successes. And that's why most successful business owners aren't 24 years old. They're 48 or 68 uh, because they've been there and done that. And that ties right into the last one, which, sorry, it cuts off on the screen, is collecting experience. Um, just having collected for a very long time is a huge advantage. I got back in in 2016. I've probably collected 15 years uh, before that during the course of my life. But getting back in in 2016 was a humongous advantage over people that got in in 2019 or 2020. Or, God forbid, the people that dove in headfirst in 2021 who got punched in the nether region. Uh, so look, uh, again, I'm not the most experienced cat out there and I don't wanna come off as I'm giving people advice on who to buy or what to buy. I'm just identifying some factors and we're having a general discussion about macroeconomics, supply and demand and price discovery. And so it can maybe help you guys in your collecting journey and your specifically your investing journey, get up in collecting as well, but your investing journey in the sports card hobby. So again, I don't want this to come off as condescending because I'm the same dude that uh, bought a hell of a lot of Chris Dunn cards and a bunch of Dennis Smith cards. So ain't nobody out there that's shooting 100% from the field in this hobby. I can promise you that. And anybody that says they are is one of those people who just doesn't talk about their misses and they only talk about their makes. And I cannot stand that. I will not name who those people are, uh, but some of the people who talk that way have missed a lot more than they have made. So uh, keep that in mind when you're watching videos, uh, uh, you know, pumping how accurate people's prognosticating and talent evaluation is. Uh, again, I'm not trying to do that here. I've got a pretty good track record and I'm pretty transparent because I share my losses and my wins as often as I can. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Understanding price discovery. Real quick, I'm going to read it. 
<sighs> so you want to know, I want to know price discovery. I want to understand more about it. I want to know what the future price discovery equilibrium is going to be on a player. So I will know whether it's a good time to buy low and then I could sell high at a later price discovery point. So at its core, price discovery involves finding where supply and demand meet. In economics, the supply curve and the demand curve intersect at a single price, which then allows a transaction to occur. Keep in mind this, this intersecting point, this single price changes multiple times in a day for certain cards, and it changes certainly for all cards at different points in time, somewhere on the time continuum. Uh, the shape of those curves is subject to many factors, as we just talked about, from transaction size to background conditions of previous or future scarcity or abundance. There's the demand part. Uh, there's the supply part, not just supply now, not just previous supply, but also future supply, future scarcity, future abundance, right? We would say that uh, the future of the PMG red is it's going to be a scarce card for eternity. Uh, but the future of the Luka Doncic, well, and the present of the Luka Doncic base prism is that it will be an abundant card in PSA 10 condition. Location, storage, transaction costs, right? Which is one barrier to, to, to entry in the market. Uh, buyer, seller, psychology, that's everything, right? You hear people say, buy the hype, sell the news. You know, seller and buyer psychology factors into the price uh, discovery point of a card, which is another word, you know, buyer psychology is another word for hype or FOMO, right? Those are two psychological terms that describe the you know mental condition or mental state of a buyer at any given point in time that drives price discovery points higher. There is no specific formula using all these factors as variables. They can be weighted differently depending on the time of the day, the time, day of the week, the week of the month, the month of the year, the year of your life. There is no specific formula using all these factors. Anybody out there who tells you they've got it figured out is a liar. Uh, but I do think it's important for us to have this analysis and have this sort of in-depth conversation about what factors and what criteria uh, you should incorporate when trying to invest in sports cards and trying to understand, you know, supply and demand and price discovery equilibrium. Again, I am going to leave out 50 billion different factors that factor into what a card is worth now and what it might be worth in the future. It can't be done in one video, even with me screaming and talking this fast. It can't be done. Indeed, the formula is a dynamic process that can change frequently, if not from trade to trade. See PMG red prices. There you go. Okay. Comps are not everything. Okay. This is important. I, I see this all the time. I overhear it. Other content creators have talked about this and people on Instagram and Facebook and other, you know, different social media platforms have spoken about it. Comps are comps. We know what they are. Comps, for those of you who are brand new to the hobby, here it is, Hobby 101, are comparative sales, right? Sales of similarly situated cards, right? Uh, for this BGS 8 star Jordan 101 that I just had on the screen, uh, a comp for that would be another sale of another card in a BGS 8 slab, but not the same card. That's a comp, okay? Uh, here's the thing to remember. For those of you who are selling, uh, or buying, right? You got to remember this from the perspective of the buyer or the seller, whether you're the dealer standing behind the table or you're the buyer who's at a card show looking up at the dealer. If no one paid over comps or sold under comps, then comps would never change. Whatever the card sold for first would be the price for a Cajun eternity. We know that's not true. So for a card to go up in value, for this BGS 8 Michael Jordan star to go up in value, look what had to happen. One, two, three, four times in a row. Someone had to pay over comps. And then guess what happened? Uh, psychological factors 
Another factor is, and probably more likely the condition and subgrades of the card, led someone to, play, to pay significantly below comps on the next two. But then what happens? Someone is willing to pay over comps, over comps, over comps, and then it's starting to settle. So we're always looking for that price discovery equilibrium, and it's a constantly changing uh, price discovery point. It's always gonna be changing. But just remember, when you hear somebody say, well, that's not what comps are, your answer could be, I don't give a shit. I don't, I don't care what comps were. I care what I'm willing to pay right now, and whether you, you're, you know, whether the supply curve, the demand curve, the price equilibrium, and all the psychological factors, and the 500 other factors at this per certain, you know, moment in time are aligned to where we can agree on a price. That's the purpose of a marketplace. <clears throat> Comps are more accurate and predictable for highly transacted cards, right? This is common sense, but let's talk about it real quick for those of you who are new to the hobby. Comps matter more for high volume cards uh, like this one. Why? Because 1,629 of them have sold <laughs> in the last year, okay? So that matters. That means 1,629 times in the last 365 days, that's about five times a day, uh, a buyer and a seller have come to an agreement on what that thing is worth. That is a very good indication of what the demand in the market is. And as you can see, it changes over time by the downward and to the right, you know, graph trend that we just saw on that Doncic. But why does it, why do the comps matter more? Because more people have spoken. More of the hobby has said, here's what the Doncic base prism PSA 10 is worth. More people have said that 1,629 times than the BGS 8 star card that we looked at, which has sold 20 times in the last 365 days, right? That's a, a drastically different quantity of meeting of the minds, as they say in law school. In law school, you know, you look for a meeting of the minds. Was there a contract? Well, there's been 1,629 contractual agreements to sell a Doncic base prism PSA 10 at a given price. There's only been 20 for Jordan. So the comps on the Jordan are going to swing more uh, in a more volatile manner. There's going to be larger percentage swings on a day-to-day, week-to-week uh, basis because there's fewer data points and fewer consummated transactions. So it's easier to discover the price discovery point for a Doncic base prism PSA 10 than it is for a Jordan BGS 8. There's just more, more buyers and sellers that put their money where their mouth is. There's significantly more volatility on scarce cards because we have less evidence to support what other people think, right? We know what we think. It doesn't matter what you think. It's what does everybody else think? It's what does that particular seller think? And what does that seller think other buyers think? That's how you figure out price discovery. It's not just what you think, right? You may covet a card or you may not really want a card, but it's not what you do or don't want. It's what everybody else in the world or in the hobby, I should say, wants or doesn't want. People who pay over comps believe the price discovery equilibrium is higher than the last comp. It just happened, and I'm going to let out a little secret. I can't believe I'm sharing this with you guys. Some of you guys are going to click off and unsubscribe, but Brian Cajun Cardboard has dove headfirst into soccer. I've always loved soccer. You guys know I talk about it all the time. My kids play soccer. I've become a soccer family. Uh, I've got a daughter playing college soccer. i got another one that's about to play college soccer. Uh, I've always watched soccer. I love the English Premier League. This is a basketball card channel, but I just dove into soccer. Finally, I was like, I've had enough. Somebody explained these products to me in parallels, and I'm going to do it. And the reason I did is because Early in the game, when Erling Haaland, I looked at Erling Haaland cards, his cards have been down too much. 
I, I watched him score the first goal recently, a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure when this is going to come out. And uh, I was like, dude, he's in a situation where he has to succeed. There's no way he can't succeed. He plays on, I think, the best team in the world and I think the best league in the world. And I think he's got the best 11 around or best 10 around him in the world. And I think he's the best current striker in the world. And he's a baby. He's 22 years old. I'm buying Erling Haaland cards. I went, I found the last comp. And then I found four available. And I paid way over comps. I'm telling you right now, I bought in. I paid way over comps. Because I thought that the price discovery point on those cards should be way, way higher based on a bazillion factors. The population of the card, the product, the perception of what is the true rookie card, the team he's on, the league he's in, you know, the direction he's headed, his age, his, his contract, a million things. The way the dude looks, the way the guy acts, the way his teammates interact with him, the way other players, his peers, his competitors, other coaches talk about him. All of those factors factored into me making a decision that I realized the last comp was $37.50. I'm willing to pay, and I'll tell you, five grand for this stupid Bundesliga 2019 Early Holland Refractor PSA 10. I don't care what the comps are. I'm setting a new comp and let, let somebody else tell me that I'm crazy and my price discovery point is wrong. So there you have it. Holland is my example. People have to be willing to pay over comps and sellers have to be willing to sell over, under comps or it'll never change. All that is, is that's me saying, I think I know more about all of these factors than everybody else, or at least more than the person who bought the last one. I'm willing to pay over comps. I'm taking that leap of faith. Take it or leave it. I'm an idiot or I'm a genius. We shall see. Uh, by the way, since then, he scored six goals in two games. Uh, investing is uh, two things. Identifying the supply. Not, remember, we talked about this, not just the current supply, that's easy, anybody can click on it, become a Card Ladder Pro member and figure it out. But it's also identifying, or just go on the PSA Pop Report and figure it out because it's free. Uh, identifying the supply, current and future, there's the problem. Where is the supply going? This is huge on Jordan 90s collectors, right? Where is the supply going? We didn't, well, some people didn't understand that the supply and the population of Jordan-based 90s PSA 10s was going to explode post-pandemic. Explode post-PSA shutdown. And it did. And guess what happened to the prices? They dropped drastically for certain Jordan cards, right? The, the more, co more common cards. The population exploded because everybody dug that crap out of binders or dug it out of their house and their old yellow top loaders and they sent it to PSA. And we, we knew it was going to go up, but maybe maybe we didn't understand how drastically it was going to go up. I don't care. I'm not selling those base cards. I'm keeping all mine uh, because I'm collecting Jordan, right? But whatever. It is what it is. So identifying supply is half the battle. You have to identify the supply as precisely as possible, not just the current, but the future. And then the second half of it, and this is where the, people, the money's made, right? This is your moneymaker. Prognosticating or predicting the hobby's future demand for that particular card predicting collectors and investors future demand for that particular card at the time that you expect to liquidate that card. Again, I'm talking about this from an investor standpoint. As a collector, you still want to know supply and demand because you want to make sure you're getting it at a good price discovery point because the better your price discovery point on the cards you purchase, the more cards you can 
open quotes, collect and keep forever, close quotes, right? So even collectors need to understand supply, demand and price discovery. But from an investor perspective, you want to know what the demand is going to be at your expected point of liquidation for these Erling Haaland soccer cards that I bought. And some of you are like, who the hell is he talking about? It's a basketball channel. Shut up. Uh, let's just say these soccer cards I bought. At some point, I'm going to sell these cards. I don't love Erling Haaland. I just thought it was a good time to buy into somebody whose prices are going to go absolutely bananas apeshit. I really think they are. And so I overpaid for the card at now prices. But I think in the future, I think the demand from the hobby based on the population and all those other factors we just discussed, I think they're going to be worth significantly more in 24 months. So that's why I bought it. I'm going to buy low and I'm going to sell high in 24 months. And guess what? He may get hit by a truck. He may get eaten by an elephant. He could, you know, break his kneecaps. I don't know. Anything can happen, man. He could murder his girlfriend. I don't know. You don't control all that. Or he may just not be as good as I think he is. Or the hobby may not exist in two years. There's a million things that could go wrong. None of this is risk-free. It's all about risk tolerance. But I am uh, using my knowledge, my history, um, you know, my collecting experience to make a prediction that the car will be worth more in two years than it is today. Uh, what factors can increase demand? So that's it, right? We want to know what future demand is going to be for a Colin Sexton card now that he got traded to the Jazz. I want to know... I want, I want to know if Colin Sexton cards are going to go up. What are some factors that can increase uh, the hobby's demand for a particular player's card? Well, demand increases. And again, if I started listing every one, it would literally be 500 or 1,000 long. So I can't do it. But obviously, number one is a player performs well. I still think, despite all the other crap going on, a player's performance still uh, is the most reliable indicia of an increase in demand for that player's cards, okay? So let's keep it simple here. Number one, I think is still the player performs well, his cards go up. The player performs poorly, his cards go down. Again, there are other reasons that a player can perform well and his cards go down. We're watching it happen with Doncic. We're watching it happen with, you know, Morant. We're watching it happen with players who are proven to be great. Steph Curry cards are going down. But I think still the most important thing is the player needs to perform well. I think Doncic cards would have gone down worse if Doncic had tore both ACLs, right? We, we can agree on that. So good performance is always going to be number one. You want to pick a player that you think is going to improve and get better and perform and achieve accomplishments and milestones. Uh, number two, player gets traded to a better situation or worse. Uh, Colin Sexton is a great example. I just did a little snippet video of that today from the Cavs Jazz trade. Colin Sexton gets traded to the Jazz horrible situation. The Jazz are going to suck beyond belief. They're going to be horrible. One of the four worst teams in the league, uh, along with the Spurs. Of course, they're going to be absolutely horrible. But guess who has to score 25 a game? Colin Sexton. He has to. He's going to take 20-plus shots a game. He's going to have the ball in his hands 50% of the game, and he's going to play probably 38 minutes a game if he's healthy. Uh, Laurie Marketing. Uh, situation significantly worse. The Cavs were really good and had a lot of promise. He's going to a miserable bottom of the league jazz team, but his cards are going to go up because he's going to get a green light. So players get traded to a better or worse situation, not necessarily better or worse team, but better or worse situation. Sometimes players leaving a good situation and going to a worse situation, just him being talked about results in the card going up. Players, teammates, coaches change, improve. Uh, teammates improving uh, like Donovan Mitchell going to the Cavs, I believe will help Mobley, Jared Allen, and Garland's card prices, right? They didn't get traded, but new teammates coming in and improving their team will result in an increase in the value of their cards. That's my opinion. Uh, coaches changing. 
play style. Uh, a new coach coming in can sometimes change the way a team plays, change their chemistry, change that. That can improve a player's uh, the demand for a certain player's cards. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into like team specific stuff. Obviously, I could make a list of 20 of those just within what happens on a player's team that changes it. Position changes is another one I didn't list on here, but that could change, you know? Um, player approaches significant achievements or milestones. This is one where you've got to be very careful. So as players approach significant achievements or milestones in their career, I'm thinking Albert Pujols with the home runs. I'm thinking Aaron Judge hitting 61. I'm thinking LeBron chasing this scoring title. I'm thinking Russell Westbrook, you know, breaking the all-time triple-double record. As players approach significant achievements and milestones theoretically the demand should go up but you've got to be very careful here that you're not so close to that milestone that the that the achievement is already what they say baked into the value of the card uh, at the present time. In other words, <clears throat> there are opinions out there that LeBron breaking the scoring record is considered an inevitability and therefore his cards will not increase as he approaches that scoring record. I don't know the answer to that. I think we're still a little bit too far out, and I think he's, he's – I know this is crazy. I think LeBron James is a little bit too off the radar for that achievement to be fully baked in, and I do think his cards will run up a little bit as we approach that uh, in the you know second half of next NBA season, the 2022-2023 season. Uh, but again, that's just one particular thing. So uh, a, a Hall of Fame nomination, a Hall of Fame induction is one thing, but a Hall of Fame being nom you know being nominated to where you might get into the Hall of Fame is, is an achievement and a milestone in and of itself that can cause a player's price and the demand for that player to go up. But you've got to be really careful that you don't overdo it and say, oh, man, he's going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame next week. I'm going to buy $50,000 worth of his cards. It doesn't necessarily always work out. In fact, oftentimes it will not work out. And that's because there's, remember, there are two sides to this equation, supply and demand. What happens when people achieve great milestones, heroic you know, feats of strength and athleticism? What happens when players win NBA titles and Super Bowls and World Series and break records? The market is flooded with, you know what I'm about to say, supply. And when the market's flooded with supply and supply exceeds demand, that depresses prices and prices actually go down. We just saw it with Steph Curry winning the NBA title. Uh, a player approaching his prime years can increase demand. Um, sometimes that's really baked in because uh, prospectors and investors in the sports card market really love to invest in young players. You know, I mean, super young players. I just did it with Halan. You know, the fact that he has not even approached his prime yet uh, in, in the soccer sport, the sport of soccer is probably already baked in. Uh, but usually as players approach their prime years, you know, their statistical uh, measurables go up. Uh, Off-season versus in-season. This used to be real easy, real predictable, and a real, uh, you know, dependable arbitrage in the hobby for many, many, many investors for years upon years. But it has gotten much more difficult because more people are aware of the in-season, out-of-season, um, cyclical nature of prices for particular players and particular sports. But also because Panini's a shit show right now, and we're getting really highly sought-after basketball products after a player's rookie season is already over, right smack in the middle of the second part of the offseason. So uh, this kind of used to be dependable, you know, investing strategy is not quite as predictable uh, of a strategy anymore simply because we don't, you know, 
Panini's not releasing products on the same schedule. So that just factor that in. Again, that would be a fascinating video for me or somebody else to do uh, about how Panini's dilatory uh, release dates have affected the age-old off-season investing strategy and then sell into the hype of the upcoming season. Is that still a play or not? I don't know. Comment below. Let me know. I know a lot of you guys do that. I... I'm aware of it. That's not my primary overriding factor to consider when I'm buying a player because I'm usually not buying a player to flip them in two months. I'm usually buying, uh, you know, if I am invest, if I am actually investing and not, you know, buying a Jordan to collect in my put in my collection forever. I'm usually not doing it for like, you know, four weeks or two or four months. Even I'm probably doing it for two to five years. Um, I've got time on my side despite the fact I'm an old old Cajun. Uh, so uh, next is demand for that sport increases. You know, uh, this this happens a lot. Baseball popularity is declining. Uh, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying that. Um, you know, I know I've got a lot of people that collect baseball cards that watch the channel. I, I don't mean this to, you know, disparage the sport. I grew up playing it. I played baseball in college as well. Oh, I say that I was a pitcher, right? It's sort of like a kicker saying he played football. But uh, I was a pitcher. I played baseball and basketball in college. I grew up playing wiffle ball every day of my life. I uh, loved home run derbies as a kid. It, you know, I couldn't wait to go down the street and get in a wiffle ball game. Uh, I love the sport of baseball, but it's too damn slow, man. You got to put a pitch clock on there. And I don't mean like generally speaking, throw the ball within a minute. I mean, they need a red number digital pitch clock just like the NBA has and I know you got to square that away with the Players Association and consider arm care and things like that for the pitchers uh, but it's got to be done or you're going to lose young people you're, you're already losing them um, and then uh, you know I'm thinking of another example of demand for a sport that increases is uh, soccer well the NBA obviously is increasing worldwide but uh, but soccer as the World Cup approaches the demand for uh, soccer cards I believe is going to increase to some extent as we approach the World Cup when um, that is, uh, you know, on the focus of collectors all around the world. So uh, that's just another example uh, of, of like long-term kind of macro uh, perspective of the sport increasing or decreasing in popularity. Uh, players off the court relevance increases. That can increase demand as well. Uh, it can also decrease demand drastically if they do something stupid a la Miles Bridges. Um, or Kevin Porter on occasion has been known to do that, right? My super prospect. So uh, their off-the-court relevance increases or decreases demand. Dame Lillard, a reason I collect, one of the reasons I collected him is I started to follow him on social media. I started to do some research on what type of human being he is, what type of father he is, what type of businessman he is, uh, what type of rapper he is. He's obviously a really good freaking hip-hop artist uh, who's got the respect of a lot of the best rappers in the world, best hip-hop artists in the world. So uh, just a lot of about the way Damian Lillard carries himself off the court mattered to me when I was uh, trying to decide, okay, who is it that I want to start uh, that I want to start a new PC of? Now, a lot of that factored into my decision. So those are just some of the factors. Dude, look, uh, I, sorry, I don't mean to say dude. That was, <laughs> that was very Louisiana. I was very East Coast. Um, so, you know, there's a million factors. I listed eight of them. I could have listed 808. Right now, this is a trend that I'm seeing, and this is important to talk about. Right now, supply is driving demand. <clears throat> okay, what I mean by that, low pop good, high pop bad. That's a fact. That's what's happening. That's what we're seeing. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also partially to blame. Uh, when people post cards on Instagram, go look at the distinction between the cards that are being posted on Instagram pages now compared to 18 months ago. 18 months ago, you would have seen somebody post 75 Zion Williamson PSA 10s and then a little uh, strong you know, bicep emoji, right? 
now, when's the last time you saw that? When's the last time you saw somebody post, you know, uh, well, recently we saw a couple of people start posting Topps Chrome LeBrons because it's it's time to buy, right? The price equilibrium point has dropped too low, and so people are starting to jump back in. But um, when's the last time you saw somebody post base prism cards, right? Never. I'm, I'm even 2012 base prisms. You don't see it. It doesn't happen. And we're, those are low pop, right? <clears throat> low pop good, high pop bad. That's a fact. That's what the hobby's decided, regardless of the player or his performance or his resume. The hobby is deciding how much is too much. And right now, my personal opinion is we knew this was coming. We knew, you know, uh, uh, we knew 20,000 was too many. Okay. 20,000 Doncic PSA 10 is too many. 20,000 Zion PSA 10 is too many. What we didn't know is that 500 is too many. And I don't think it is. And I think the pendulum has swung too far. I'll, be, I'll go out on a limb and I'll say it. Uh, you know, 2016 base prism is not the same as 2018 and 2019 base prism. It's not. Go look for yourself. There's a big difference. Uh, and you can take it a step further. 2012 Prism Silver is very, very, very different than 2019 Prism Silver. It's not the same thing. Um, you know what? Look, I've got it pulled up here. I'll switch you guys over. Uh, there are more Doncic one-of-one cards in the world. There's more Doncic one-of-one rookie cards. Let's put it that way. There are more Doncic one-of-one rookie cards than Giannis, Kawhi, and Anthony Davis, Silver, Prism, PSA 10s combined. Let that sink in. These are alleged one-of-one cards. Well, they're not alleged. They are. They're one-of-one cards. But there are so many different Doncic one-of-one cards. There's more of those Doncic one-of-one rookie cards than Giannis, Kawhi, and Anthony Davis, Silver, Prism, PSA 10s combined. Okay? That is why 2012 Silver is not the same as 2019 Silver. 2019 silver is not the same as 2017 silver even. Go look for yourself. Guys, do the research. Um, what we've done is we've grouped everything together, and that's what uh, you know we call guilt by association. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But uh, but that, that was important. I just wanted you to, to, to understand that right now, supply is driving demand. Uh, how many of them are out there matters. Uh, it's creating demand in and of itself. You're almost looking at pop before you even look at the player's face and jersey that's on the card. Um, and that, I think that that pendulum has swung too far. We have a hyper focus on supply right now. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unhealthy in my opinion. And I think the pendulum has swung and it needed to swing, but I think it swung too far and it still hasn't settled at that equilibrium. So when, when considering scarcity and supply, right? Supply is so hyper focused right now, so important to the hobby. Don't fall for false scarcity. And people know this, right? But I'm just going to elucidate it here for you. That's a great Cajun vocabulary word that I've developed over my many years of reading dictionaries in the swamp. There's 32 1961 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain PSA 9 rookie cards. Okay, 32 in the world. That's not a lot, right? We know that's not a high pop card, but I'm using that card as an example. There are four Luka Doncic Gold Prism PSA 10 rookie cards. Huge cards, right? Humongous card. I would die to have that card. I would also die to have a 32 Wilt Chamberlain card. But there's four Luka Doncic Gold Prism PSA 10s, right? Only 10 were ever made. So you're thinking to yourself, that's eight times as rare. There's eight times as many Wilt Chamberlain PSA 9s, but is there really? And let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this. <clears throat> there are 6,572 other Prism Parallel PSA 10 Doncic rookie cards. Sorry, I'm taking a drink of water. 6,572 Prism Parallel PSA 10 rookie cards. I'm not including BGS. 
I'm not including base prism. I'm not including PSA 9s, 8s, 7s, and 6s. I'm not including raw. I'm only talking about Jim Mint, PSA 10, Luka Doncic, color rookie cards. From only prism. I'm not counting optic. I'm not counting select. I'm not counting origins. I'm not counting chronicles. I'm not counting hoops. I'm not counting Don Rust. I'm not counting national treasures. Flawless, immaculate, noir, and every other damn product that's out there that Panini's overprinting. It also, there's 6,572 of those. There's also 18,649 base prism PSA 10s. Okay? Okay, now we're at 25,000, about. It's also not including 6,000 BGS 9.5 rookie cards for Doncic from Prism, graded by Beckett. Okay, so now we're at 31,000. These, these are 31,000 Jim Mint Doncic rookie cards. 31,000, keep in mind, what did we say about Will Chamberlain rookie card PSA 9s? There's 32 of them. <clears throat> This is also not including every other product that we just discussed from every other grading company we just discussed. We didn't talk about CSG. We didn't talk about SGC. We didn't talk about HGA. We didn't talk about ASS or whatever these stupid grading companies are called. Um, for Wilt, there's one rookie card. You have one option. I want to buy a Wilt Chamberlain rookie, Dad. What is it? it guess what, son? It's 1961 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, for Doncic, there's, by the way, 2,000 total graded ever by PSA, okay? And that presumably includes a few Kraken subs as well. But let's say 2,000. We're going to round up and ignore the Kraken subs. There's 2,000. There are 1,250 different types of Doncic rookie cards based on trading card database information. That's not how many cards. That's how many different types of cards. I am going to go out on a limb and say there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Doncic rookie cards printed. Not, it's not low hundreds of thousands. I, I mean, I would guess it's significantly more than a million. Um, that is scary to me. And so to look at the Gold Prism PSA 10 and say there are only four of them, yes, that is absolutely true. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not crapping on that card because it's a crazy ass card, but you have to keep in perspective. There's also orange. There's also black 101s. There's also a nebula. There's also 101s from other pro there's There's a million options around it where somebody can say, man, that price looks high. You know what? I'm just going to grab the mojo, which again is another awesome card. I'm not saying that. But, you know, if you want a Wilt Chamberlain rookie, you got, you know, 1,923 graded by PSA in all grades. If you want a Luka Doncic PSA 10, you've got over 100,000 to choose from. And so that's what I'm talking about with false scarcity. It's almost like this false sense of comfortability that if you're buying a card with a serial number on it, that you're, you're fine, you're protected. If you add up all the serial numbers, I promise you it's a lot more than 100,000. It's, it's way, way over 100,000 serial number graded Luka Doncic rookie cards. And for Wilt Chamberlain, there's 1923 graded by PSA. Again, there's BGA, BVG or whatever at SGC out there. I get it, right? But uh, I think it's just really important to keep that in perspective. And what I said about Wilt Chamberlain um, applies to some extent all the way up through 1989. Um, those are your options, right? Fleer. <laughs> you want a Scottie Pippen rookie? Here you go. Now you can make the Jordan star argument, Barkley star argument, Elijah all that crap. I'm not getting into that. But, okay, fine. There's two options, right? You want a Jordan rookie? You got three options. His sticker, his base, and then his star. There you go. There's your three Jordan rookies, right? Uh, for Doncic, you've got hundreds of thousands. Let's just put it that way. All right. 
Moving on, I'm not going to get any more into that because I love modern collecting and I still do it, but I do it on a very short-term basis and I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind. How much of the 18-month dip has to do with the hobby's reaction and decision regarding high pop versus supply increasing? Um, and how much of it is more the result of the general economic concerns and fears of the average collector? I don't know. You don't know. We all have our opinions. Is the market down because this is our reaction to Panini printing the hell out of cards and Card Ladder and some of these other great data platforms giving us the information that we've so desperately wanted, satiating our need for uh, certainty and, uh, and, and numbers to back up how many of these cards are out there? Is that why the market's in a dip for 18 months? Or is it just because, you know, Jabroni's crypto went down? Or, you know, Luther's, uh, you know, New York Stock Exchange stock portfolio is half of what it was. I don't know. Um, but uh, those are those are factors to consider, man. Is uh, is it is this a is this a little combination of the two? I think it probably is. I think a lot of people are fearful with their money right now. I think they're in a wait and see mode. I think they're waiting to see. And I'm speaking for Americans primarily. I think we're waiting to see on what's going to happen with the economy, um, <clears throat> you know, might have a little bit of a wait here, man. I mean, the market may be down for a little bit, but uh, you know, part of it unquestionably is that we ignored supply for so long because we were so hyper-focused on demand and money was flowing. And now we're realizing mm, this money's not flowing and I'm raising my hand too. This money's not quite flowing like it was in 2020 and 2021. It's not as easy to make money in life. It's not as easy to make money in cards. It's certainly not as easy to make money in stock or crypto or beanie babies or sneakers or mugs or blankets or whatever it is that people sell out there, pins, um, you know, and, uh, and by the way, everything costs more, you know, chocolate milk costs too much, uh, even in Louisiana. What do, what I do know, not all base are the same and not all silver prism are the same. And I think it's really important to remember this from an investor perspective. The hobby has accepted guilt by association. And we touched on this a couple slides ago, and I showed you the picture uh, right here of this Giannis Silver Prism rookie. And I'm using this as an example. I own a BGS 9.5. I always try to be, uh, you know, look, let's pull up Anthony Davis for God's sakes. That way I'm not accused of hyping my own card. Of course, I don't own any Anthony Davis cards. Uh, well, I own one, sorry, the base, because I'm collecting the set. But uh, there's 32 Silver PSA 10 Anthony, da Anthony Davis cards, guys. There's 32 of them out there. You know, uh, how many Doncic silver prisms are there out there? And I know it sounds like I'm bagging on Doncic, but he is kind of the face of, you know, modern collecting. Here we go. Let's pull it up. There it is. <clears throat> There's 2,143. I don't know. Uh, you know, again, I'm really good at math, but I'm not good enough to do 2,143 divided by 32. I'm going to say it's like 65 uh, or something like that. 68, 69, 70. There's 170th as many Anthony Davis rookie cards out there. Okay. That is a lot less. <laughs> so you can't say silver prisms are overprinted. You can't say stuff like that. You know, it's like saying white people can't dance. You know, you, you can't say stuff like that, right? White people can't jump. <laughs> There's one of my favorite movies of all time, right? You can't make blanket statements like that because it's not always true. But the hobby is accepted. It's guilt by association, right? Silvers are overprinted. Base prisms are overprinted. Oh, really? Well, how many base prism Giannis PSA 10s are there? Uh, not 30,000, not 50,000, however many, or 150,000 Doncic or Zions. There's not that many printed, I can tell you that. 
So let's stop. Let's relax and let's let's take a close uh, let's take a closer look at, at the actual pop report rather than just dismissing a color or a silver or a base for the sake of it being a base. That's really uh, it's kind of stereotyping, which is something that we're trying to get get out of the habit of doing in society. And uh, so we're we're actually employing that same uh, fallacy and that illogical uh, blanket you know thinking in the hobby, and we need to get away from that. Um, this is an exploitable, illogical misconception. So what am I saying here? Well, I'm, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Guess what I'm buying? I'm buying 2012 silvers. I'm buying 2012 greens. I'm buying 2013 and 14 colored cards uh, from Prism. I'm buying LeBrons from 2013, 14, 15. You know why? Because 2014 Prism is not 2020 Prism. It's not the same thing. Your little micro Kobe tribute LeBron dunk where he's a little tiny person on the horizontal card should not be worth more than a 2013 Prism. LeBron, it, it shouldn't, it's not gonna, I mean, it's not gonna be in the long run. At some point, people are gonna figure it out. And remember what we talked about. It's not just what is the supply right now. It's what's the supply gonna be in five years. Uh, the 20, you know, 2012, 13, 14 stuff might grow, but it's not gonna grow at the same rate as the 2020 stuff. So you guys, I just want you guys to be careful with all that stuff. Um, again, I love modern prospecting. I bought a bunch of uh, prospect cards from uh, 2020, actually, this week, believe it or not. I haven't talked about it on the show because I'm, you know, keeping this one private for now because I want to buy a bunch of his cards as somebody that I've uh, really come to, to like as a player and a human being. But, um, you know, I'm doing it. I, I just, you, you got to remember, you know, price points, everything, and it's supply and demand. And, and, you know, I can't imagine myself wanting to own any card from 2020 in the year 2030. I just don't think, I think at some point the hobby's going to figure it out just like the hobby has started to, to educate itself over the last two years. Uh, the current state of the hobby. This is in summation. Um, there's a hyper focus on supply. We talked about it. Whereas in 2021, there was a hyper focus on demand. So it's the opposite. In 2020, we were completely ignoring the supply or likely future supply. We knew there was a tsunami out there, but we couldn't really see it because it was so far out in the ocean. This is for Cage and Andrew Goldberg. They love analogies. We knew the tsunami was coming. Right, it was just hundreds of miles off the coast, so it was like eh, it's no big deal. We don't need to worry about this right now. I can get in, I can get out, I can get in, I can get out 50 times over on all of these cards. I know there's going to be a few thousand of them, but how many could there really be? Well, guess what? Uh, there's a bazillion of them out there, and Panini printed them, and they knew what they were doing, and they did the same thing that Upper Deck did in 1989, and they did the same thing that all the manufacturers did in the first three years of the 90s, which is what we call the junk wax era, and now we call this the junk slab era. And it, basically, my summation is there's a hyper focus on supply, but I think we're focusing too much on that. Are some cards absurdly overprinted? Yes, but not all cards. Um, so it's just something to kind of keep in mind when you're doing your ultra modern prospecting is, you know, understand what your buy sell window is, you know, make sure you get out of cards before they run away from you too much. I mean, I'd hate for somebody to be the person who was buying, you know, Donchich Silvers for, you know, uh, $6,000 in October of 2021, man. Um, and even more than that, I mean, that card got to, Good Lord, y'all. That card got to $8,811. I mean, look at this. This card got to $8,000. $9,000. $9,098 at the height of that 2021 bubble. Look at it. It's right there. And now it's selling for, the last one sold for $2,000. Imagine if you bought 10 of those. You just lost $70,000. Um, you know, 
just I worry about people staying in the hobby. I want everybody to stay in the hobby long term, and I worry about people who got hit so hard in 2021 not being able to stick around. Anyway, my, my opinion is it's possible the pendulum has swung from one extreme where we ignored supply to another extreme where supply means too much. Um, and it has not settled down where it belongs, which is the price equilibrium. I don't think it's settled down where we've equally considered supply and demand. Right now, we're ignoring future demand. We're ignoring that Doncic literally could be one of the 10 greatest players that ever lived. He's got that potential. We're ignoring the fact that Giannis could be one of the five to 10 greatest players that ever lived. Is, is it possible? Yeah, it's very possible. It's very possible. Both of those guys and other guys, there's other prospects out there. It is possible. Um, but we're ignoring the demand and we're so hyper-focused on supply that we're only buying gold, blacks, and then, you know, cards that nobody's ever seen before. So I feel like it's just swung a little bit too much. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's a, the only way to get to that equilibrium is to swing back and forth, uh, you know, a couple times in different directions. But anyway, that's it for my video. I, I don't know if that helped at all. I know I kind of rambled and I just had a bunch of thoughts that I wanted to put on slides. I woke up the other day thinking about supply and demand when I saw somebody post, you know, uh, it's simple supply and demand as an answer to a question. Well, it's not even, it's not even an answer. It's a question. It, it's a question to a question. It didn't make any sense, but comment with your thoughts. I mean, I think this is a pretty thought provoking video. Some of you guys may think I'm an absolute idiot. Um, I certainly, uh, I certainly did not intend for this video to come across as a me telling you what to do with your money or how to run your collection or how to, um, you know, engage in the hobby by no means. Um, it was really just a, like a couple of, uh, thought points that I've run across that I kind of jot down notes that I want to talk about on videos. And I kind of jammed them all into one to spit it out here. Again, I am from Louisiana. <laughs> I'm a, I'm not an economics major. I'm not an investment banker. I'm not a stock or crypto broker. If those exist, uh, I just like to buy basketball cards low and sell high. And then some cards I like to buy low and never sell ever. So, uh, that's what I do. I hope you guys, uh, understand that I definitely wasn't, uh, trying to, uh, you know, be the Pied Piper leading people down a particular path. Again, I got no dog in this hunt. I've got all sorts of cards. I got lots of high pop cards. I got lots of low pop cards too. Um, but uh, this hobby is all about having fun, hedging risk, getting in at the right price point, enjoying the cards that you love and that you want to collect, and then having fun making money too. I've got, I see no problem with that. And um, I think sometimes flipping and investing gets a bad name, but it takes all types in this hobby, man. It even takes some people that don't collect cards at all. Uh, you know, that just, uh, that just come in and, and study it and, and, uh, and help provide, uh, you know, the corporate infrastructure of the hobby. Um, so anyway, thank you guys for watching. I do really want to hear some of your comments below about supply, demand, price discovery, the market in general, where it's going, where it's been, why it's going the way it's going, when it will end, where we're going next, what's the next big play. All that stuff is a blast. Uh, so uh, feel free to share your comments. Just try to keep them clean. And then, uh, you know, if somebody puts a comment down there that you don't agree with, just keep it clean when you respond to that person as well. So uh, anyway, thank you guys for watching. Keep collecting. Stay positive in the hobby. And peace.